path that the Buddha taught is commonly known as the middle way or the middle path. It's the middle way for several different reasons. It avoids different sets of extremes that are commonly known to us. It avoids the extremes between overindulgence in the senses, which is based on complacency and based on desire. And it avoids the extreme of over-asceticism or self-mortification. Both of these extremes are in fact personified in the life of the Buddha. When he lived in the world as a prince, he lived surrounded by the glitter of sense delight. Said that his parents were so concerned that he not be troubled by unhappiness in any way, that they would have a team of gardeners that would go out at night, and through the night they would pluck out any blossoms that were wilting or withering, so that he should not have to be troubled by the sight of something that was imperfect. He found it a very hollow world and yet intoxicating. That's the problem with it, is that when we are intoxicated within it, we tend not to look for anything deeper or anything other than what it can offer. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is that of self-mortification which the Buddha also practiced for about six years after leaving home. Various torments of the body, extreme giving up, extreme renunciation. It was quite common in his time for people in India to feel that by torturing the body in some way, they could free the spirit They could liberate the spirit, and it would soar beyond the confines of the physical body. There were people known as the bovine ascetics and the canine ascetics who went around for all of their lifespan as renunciates imitating cows and imitating dogs. They went around on all fours, it is said, thinking that by humiliating the body in that way, they would become enlightened, they would become free to torture the body and liberate the spirit. These days, we don't go in for that very much. (laughs) We have much more of a tendency when we're on the self-mortification side of things to torture the mind to get into some kind of tormenting relationship with the mind of abuse and self-hatred and feeling that somehow that's going to liberate us, that's going to bring freedom. These are the two extremes, indulgence, self-mortification. The path of the Buddha is also the middle path or the middle way between two sets of extreme views. One extreme view tells us 
that there's something solid or secure or substantial to be found somewhere in this world of presentation of the six senses. When we are caught or lost in this view, then we grasp and we cling to a world of change and appearance, and so we suffer. Within this worldview, things matter quite a lot, and we look and we look for that one thing that is going to be secure, that is going to be stable. The other extreme view tells us that nothing matters, nothing at all matters, that everything is a kind of void or blank, that we live in chaos. This leads to paralysis. It's the worldview within which When we are lost in it, we say that since everything is empty, what difference does it make anyway? Why do anything? What is a correct perspective, leaving aside both of these extremes, is to understand that things do happen in this world according to certain laws, such as the law of karma that we do not live in an accidental, random, haphazard universe. Yet all that arises that can be known with the body or with the mind is fleeting, it's ephemeral, it's insubstantial. Our experience arises and passes in accord with the laws of nature. When we perceive the emptiness of self, the insecurity, or the transient nature of our experience, then we see that there's nothing to hold on to, and we grow in wisdom. When we perceive relatedness and the relationship of things according to these laws, then we grow in love and we grow in compassion. It's like the two wings of a bird. We need both of them in order to be able to fly. It's also exemplified in a line in a poem by T.S. Eliot in Ash Wednesday, in which he says, teach us to care and not to care, which I think is quite a beautiful expression of the seeming paradox we find at the heart of practice. To learn not to care means to come to know the peace of silence, which does not mean to withdraw or to pull away or to be indifferent towards. The words can be very confusing in this regard because detachment is not a cold or a hard state. It means that we can be with anything because we're not afraid and we're also not grasping. It's the peace of silence, when the mind doesn't react, when it doesn't move. Silence doesn't mean that nothing is happening. In a very famous quote by the Thai teacher Ajahn Chah, he says that when we practice meditation, the mind becomes like a still forest pool. Many wonderful and rare animals come to drink at the pool, yet the pool remains still, 
This is the happiness of the Buddha. Many wonderful and rare animals will come of all kinds, all descriptions. Yet we remain still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. To learn not to care in the sense of developing equanimity through all of the constant change of pleasure and pain and gain and loss, all of the vicissitudes which are actually the fabric of our lives. They're inseparable from our lives. Pleasant and painful sights and sounds and tastes and sensations in the body. To know that we don't need to be pushing away and to be holding on. That what is hidden, what is secret in our world will be revealed when we can observe without longing, without desire, without aversion, without fear. To be in balance so that we can come to know for ourselves that which is hidden, that which is not understood. To be with our experience fully, no matter what it is, with acceptance and with wisdom, to see the changes and to accept. We can see that our lives are like a jewel with many facets. They're so intricate and so connected. Our lives are so intertwined in this universe. I was thinking the other day about how now that the weather is cold when it was colder. I was thinking, well, it's really too bad because now the building of my house will be probably slowed down really a lot. And then I started thinking, but then the flies will go away. So it was in one experience of perceiving cold, it was like down and up, down and up, right there. Our lives are so intertwined, they're so rich. We can see what's happening, all of it, with a sense of appreciation. On a certain level, this means that we see the phantom-like nature of things. There are many images that are used in the Buddhist texts to somehow try to evoke this sense of our lives, of seeing and hearing and tasting and touching and smelling and thinking. Talk about life being like a rainbow, like an echo, like a dream, like a flickering lantern, like a flash of lightning in the summer sky. Talk about life being like a drop of dew on a blade of grass. It's so insubstantial, so phantom-like, with its different flavors, its different textures, different colors. When we learn not to care in the sense of grasping and pushing away, then what we discover, in fact, is a sense of contentment that is beyond measure, because it is not based on holding on to things which are evaporating in front of our very eyes. 
And in some strange way, we also learn not to care about the practice itself, which means actually to learn to be patient. My first teacher was a man named Goenka. Some of you have sat with him. The early period of my practice for several months was very, very difficult. I had quite a lot of trouble in every conceivable way. There's a time when I went up to Goenka at the end of a sitting, and I marshaled all my courage, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, isn't there an easier way? I think I sort of had the feeling that if I could only catch him off guard, he would be forced to admit that, yes, there was an easier way, and that my struggles were meaningless in some fashion. And he just looked at me in that moment. My strongest impression of the eye contact that we had was that he was really observing my practice from a perspective of lifetimes. Lifetimes and lifetimes of effort. So that the bummer of an afternoon that I was so desolated over was happening in his eyes in this vast ocean. And he just looked at me and shook his head or something like that. The practice is really timeless. As another early teacher of mine, Manindra, used to say, time is not a factor. It is not something that is relevant in this process. The practice is timeless. It's like planting a garden and trying to make the flowers grow faster than they actually are. It's irrelevant. We plant the seeds, we nurture it, we water it, we let it be, it will grow in its own time and in its own way. Somebody once asked the Buddha, they asked him this question, they said, how is it that you crossed the flood? How did you cross the flood? Meaning the flood of of suffering, of samsara. And the Buddha replied, I crossed the flood by not lingering and by not hurrying. One who lingers drowns. One who hurries gets swept away by not lingering and by not hurrying. Time is an irrelevant consideration precisely because the Dhamma is good in the beginning and in the middle and in the end. In fact, in this multifaceted life of ours, It is the singular element that goes beyond birth and goes beyond death. And so time is not a factor. In Burma, they have a saying, they talk about a hunter that goes into the forest to try to capture a bird or an animal. And they say that the hunter may spend quite a long time in the forest 
And perhaps we'll never capture that bird or that animal. And it doesn't matter. Because what happens for the hunter in the time that is spent in the forest is that they learn the ways of the forest. And all of that wandering, in all of that time, we learn the ways of the forest. And so whether or not we capture that prized ideal, we are learning the ways of the forest as we explore this body and this mind in their own nature. So we can let go, we can be patient, allow things to evolve in their own time. We learn not to care. And also we learn very much to care. Not in the way, in the old way of attachment, of grasping and clinging. Not wanting in that sense. But rather in the sense of the fullness of a very loving awareness. This quality of loving awareness takes an enormous amount of energy tremendous amount of energy. We talk about the path of the Buddha, the path that we follow, as being the middle path. As one discerning friend of ours once said, you know, most of us would really rather follow the upper middle path. (laughs) Basically, we like to be comfortable. We like to be with the familiar. We like to consider the line of self-mortification to be very close. And so it's not that easy to really push our limits to see what actually is the middle path. The first time that I went to Burma in recent years was a few years ago. We went during the rainy season. The atmosphere in the rainy season in Burma is very heavy. It pours and pours, just sheets of rain come out of the sky. You can't even believe how much much rain there is. And everything is very dark and dank and heavy and humid. Clothes take about two weeks to dry. A lot of things mildew shoes mildew, and my watch band mildewed right off of my arm, and my lungs mildewed. and It's really, it's a heavy, oppressive, unpleasant environment. When we were there, Saira Upandita was giving a series of discourses on the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the teaching of the Buddha that the practice is most directly taken from. He was trying to find a good translation for a word, atapi, which is normally translated as effort. By the end of the evening, we had settled upon the word ardency, to be ardent in what one is doing. And he said it can be considered like this. When the mind or the heart is filled with certain qualities of mind, of greed, of hatred, of delusion, then the atmosphere within is a lot like the atmosphere in Burma during the rainy season. 
It's dark and wet and oppressive and heavy. He said this quality of ardency is like lighting a fire. The strength of that fire clears out, it clarifies, it brightens, it simplifies the atmosphere. It dries it out from that dankness, that oppressiveness. Ardency is like a fire. When we light that fire, there is nothing that can stand in our way because we do not stop. We do not allow ourselves to be overcome by that oppressiveness, and it will clarify, it will brighten. To transcend hesitation, not to bargain, not to hold back, to go straight ahead, no matter what is happening, to be wholehearted, to be ardent, to be complete. In the Satipatthana Sutta, there are three kinds of power that are talked about. Some of the elements of our practice bring us happiness. Some bring us peace. Some bring us wisdom. These three bring us power. That is atapi, or ardency, sampojanya, which is clear comprehension, to know correctly and distinctly by oneself, to have the power of being able to rely on one's own sense of what is true, not borrowing that knowledge from some other source. And then this word, satima, which means continuous, unbroken mindfulness. These three, ardency and clear comprehension and unbroken mindfulness, are what give us power. When the mind can follow the object like flowing water, when we develop observing power which follows just like a stream of water towards the object in an unbroken way, The word satipatthana, which is a description of the practice, actually can be literally translated as extreme mindfulness. It's not just kind of being present. It's extreme mindfulness. And we do it one moment at a time, which is all we actually can do. Whenever we lose it, whenever we become confused or lost or unaware, then we simply begin again. There's no judgment. There's no chastising. We begin again. We do that over and over again because we care enough about what is happening to begin again. The example is often given in describing meditation of walking a tightrope. So we're walking this tightrope, the quality that clearly has the most importance, the most relevance to what we are doing is that of balance. So we're walking along this tightrope, maintaining and renewing a sense of balance, 
basically minding our own business. And what happens? It's like all of these different things come whizzing by our heads, different sights and sounds and emotions, different realizations, different ideas. If what's happening is pleasant enough, then our conditioned tendency is to reach out, to hold on, to make them stay, attracted by the glitter, attracted by the dazzling element of it, attracted by the pleasure. Now, as we reach out to make these experiences stay, to try to make them stay, we lose our balance and we fall off the tightrope. Some of the different things that come by, the sights and the sounds, the images, the ideas, the feelings, are very unpleasant, they're very difficult. And so our conditioned tendency is to reach out and try to push them away, to make them go away. Once again, when we reach out to push away, we lose our balance. And again, we fall off the tightrope. But what happens? When we find ourselves hurtling through the air, having fallen off the tightrope, when we come to what we discover is that invariably what we land upon is yet another tightrope. And so right in that moment of recognition, of waking up, we can begin again. There's always another opportunity. It actually is a very intense ardency. We don't like to use the word striving because it can have so many confusing connotations, but actually it is striving. It's holding something as a value, taking all of the necessary steps to attain it, to realize it for oneself. What it is not is straining. It's not getting overwrought and judgmental and critical in the process. Actually, it is striving. It is very intense wholeheartedness, not holding back and being very committed. In one of the suttas, the Buddha said this. He said, By him or her who knows not, who sees not things as they really are. Training must be done. Practice must be done. Will must be exercised. Exertion must be made. There must be no turning back. There must be ardor. There must be energy. There must be perseverance. There must be mindfulness. There must be understanding. There must be earnestness. It's very intense. That is power to not hold back, to give it everything you've got, to be that committed and that energetic. The Buddha was very fond of sending people off into the forest where he would point to the tree that they would be standing next to and he would say, here bhikkhus, Bhikkhus means yogis. It's monks and nuns and men and women who are walking on the path. He would say, here bhikkhus are the roots of trees. Don't be negligent. 
What that means is that people would just sit down at the roots of trees, that we don't need something in order to practice, that here we are, right here and now. There's nothing to wait for all around us. It's the roots of trees. It's the natural elements of our experience. We can do it right now. In fact, the last words of the Buddha, which were read last night, exemplify this as well, that all conditioned things arise and pass away. Strive on untiringly. You know, people often think about this quality of ardency or effort as a burden, as a drag, or as a contest. But actually, what it is, is a blessing. Because what it means is that we each have the potential to realize the truth for ourselves. And that when we know how to use effort wisely, we can transform that which is abstract and far away into a living, breathing reality for us, right here and now. When we understand how to use effort, then what it gives us is courage and determination. Because the truth becomes our own, not something to be admired from afar. It is our own. That is the beauty of effort. There's so much that we want in our lives. As the years go by, different things seem important. One year we want this, and perhaps it's very helpful or important to us. The next year we want maybe something else. And so we work for it. We work to create it. And then that also passes. What in our lives is actually worth dying for? Is there anything that is beyond the confines of birth and death? And that is the truth. It's understanding. Our lives may be seen as being dreamlike, as being insubstantial, as this phantom-like creation arising and passing away. But with energy or effort, we can break free of this. We can break free into reality. We can break free, we can open up into that which is beyond what we can know with the senses, with the mind and with the body, that which is beyond change and beyond doubt we can understand for ourselves. We learn to care. We learn to put out untiring effort. And we learn to do this intelligently. Meditation is a skill. It's like an art form. It's not just a chaotic procession you know, of sitting and judging oneself and hating oneself and not even realizing it. There's a way to practice meditation that is eloquent and that is in harmony. The mind itself is our medium. It's like our art form. So we care for it, we nurture it, and we develop it. 
Back in the days when I was practicing the torment of continuity with Upandita, sometimes he would ask me, he would say, do you believe what the Buddha said when he taught that continuity of mindfulness will bring the overcoming of sorrow and distress, the disappearance of pain and grief, the gaining of the right path, the realization of Nibbana. This phrase is the end of the Satipatthana Sutta. Upandita would ask me this, and I would say, oh yes, I believe that. And then Upandita would say, well, wouldn't it be better to actually experience it rather than merely believe it? And I would say, yes, there's no doubt about that. And then he would say, okay, tell me how you put on your shoes. Tell me how you washed your face. Tell me how you looked at your watch. Tell me how you wrote that note. Did I really believe it was possible? Could I put it into practice? It's that simple to be present, to be mindful, no matter what we're doing to see our whole life as an art form. It's not the believing of it or the thinking about it. It's the doing of it. A few weeks ago, Steve was mentioning the two chief disciples of the Buddha, Sariputra and Moggallana, and the difference in their personalities. Moggallana heard some instruction, went to practice, and quite quickly became enlightened. Sariputra had a much more investigative mind. It's said that whenever he had an experience in his practice, he would like to look at it from a hundred different angles before he would let it go and move on. So it took him a fair amount longer. Although once he was enlightened, he was considered to be the foremost disciple in terms of wisdom. It didn't take him all that long. It took him two weeks. <laughs> but it was a long time in those days. Sometimes we put forth too much effort or the wrong kind of effort. It comes from over-investigation. Around the time that Upandita was here, we used to talk about, he used to talk about the Sariputra Club and the Moggallana Club. And sometimes when people would present an experience to him, he would say, well, do you think you belong in the Sariputra Club or the Moggallana Club? These are the constituents of the Sariputra Club. It's when you're sitting and thinking, and what you're thinking is, is what I'm noting physical or is it mental? Is this a plan or is it an idea or is it a thought? Is this the function or the characteristic or the manifestation of this mind state? Or it's when you compare your experience to study or you compare your experience to previous experience so that the mind doesn't rest upon an object but it seizes it and it scrutinizes it with too much energy, too much effort. Or when we have too much expectation to gain 
or too much zeal to achieve, and we make too much effort. We try to note as though we're going to demolish our experience. The mind can't be steady in that case. It just wanders again and again. Or we get a sense of wanting to note each object without missing anything, and so we begin to anticipate. It's like we're seeking objects to note. So we sit there thinking, well, if restlessness arises, I'll note it that way. And if pain comes by the end of the sitting, I'll just note it as pain. And we just anticipate what's going to be coming next. Or else we're not satisfied with what's actually happening right now. We want something new and we want something special. Because noting the same thing over and over again gets boring. Or sometimes we sit and think about what's already gone by. Well, in that experience I had 10 minutes ago or last week, was I noting well? You know, was my noting really hitting the target or was I, was I late? So we reflect back again and again on what's already gone by. When our effort is in, out of balance in this way, when it's unbalanced, then it's like the mind slides and it slips off of the object. And then we get angry with ourselves and we get angry with everything and everyone around us. We feel a lot of frustration. It's like going to that garden where we've so carefully planted the seeds and watered and nurtured and then pulling up the plant to see how well it's growing. (laughs) It's very frustrating. It all comes back to that sense of right aim, the arrow and the target, or the fork and the broccoli. Not too little energy and not too much energy. To be able to touch just what is happening right now, it's enough. When I was doing walking meditation in Burma this last time that I was there, I felt a certain amount of tension in my practice, and I stopped. And I tried to see what was creating the tension. What I realized I was doing was I had a certain sense that I had to do the practice and to make it work. So it was like a double effort. I had to do it and try to do it so correctly that I could make it work, I could get results. And so the whole time I was doing it, I was looking for results. Once I realized that, I realized that I could relax, that all I needed to do was do the practice, that it actually worked fine all by itself. I didn't have to go through any kind of machination to make it work. It did work. So immediately, 50% of my energy could relax. Just to do the practice. We can trust it. It will work. We don't have to figure out complex schemes for dealing with what is happening. We don't have to get tense and tight and overbearing. Just to do the practice, to trust it, to be aware of what our experience is. That is why we have a form, so we can stop thinking. We can rely upon the form. We can trust it, because it is a good form. 
it will serve us, it will work. To care about the practice enough to do it respectfully and in this balanced way. This is difficult for us. It's very, very difficult for us to learn to be able to commit to something with all of our hearts, not turning back, not being negligent, not pulling away, and also allowing this process all of the time that it needs to flower on its own, in its own time. It is such an amazing paradox to be able to bring all of these elements together. We resolve the paradox, we become able to hold it and stay balanced by constantly purifying our motives. You can see that a feeling of self-hatred or wanting to change oneself infused with the feeling of self-hatred can't sustain very long. It is not something that fuels a lifetime of practice. It is something that arises and burns out. What replaces it is a sense of compassion. We learn to care in the sense of loving care, to care for ourselves and to care for all beings. We work to come out of our suffering, but not due to anger, not due to finding it unbearable. We learn to put things down, to purify, to leave things aside, different elements of our experience, of our mind's habits, but without anger. Without anger towards ourselves or towards what we are dropping, what we're putting down. This is acting out of a true sense of respect and compassion for ourselves, all elements of ourselves. We have such a very strange, almost weird notion of compassion, often. Yesterday, when I was sitting here with you, full-blown in my mind came the image and the memory of the television show from my childhood called Queen for a Day. I don't know how many of you watched this show when you were younger. What the show was about was a series of women who would get up on stage and they would tell these utterly heartbreaking stories about their lives. Terrible, terrible, terrible things happen to them all the time. And out of this group of women who would, who would describe these awful situations that their lives had fallen into, one would be chosen and she would be crowned queen for a day. And they would put this crown on her head and give her this bunch of roses and they would, they would shower her with gifts like washing machines and cars and things like that. It was terrible to think that that was my idea of compassion that that was the cultural mandate, that this is true compassion. It was terrible. 
we have such a strange idea of what it means to open to ourselves or to another human being, to be able to be touched deeply by someone's pain, ourselves or someone else's. We have a strange idea of purity as well. Purity is a word that we normally only associate with consumer goods, like you know, pure orange juice or pure butter or something like that. And when we think about it in terms of ourselves, we actually tend to be embarrassed by it. The literal word for path as an eightfold path in Pali is maga. The first part of that word, ma, means to cause the death of. Ga, G-G-A, means attained or arrived or reached. So that the hidden meaning of the word maga is the nature of attainment by abandoning to abandon defilements, to purify. This means that in following the path, we don't struggle to be different, but rather we learn to abandon, to let go. And so we purify, we find release, we find relief. We walk the path for the sake of purifying. The literal word for path, as an eightfold path in Pali, is maga. The first part of that word, ma, means to cause the death of. Ga, G-G-A, means attained or arrived or reached. So that the hidden meaning of the word maga is the nature of attainment by abandoning, to abandon defilements, to purify. This means that in following the path, we don't struggle to be different, but rather we learn to abandon, to let go. And so we purify, we find release, we find relief. We walk the path for the sake of purifying. And we walk the path fueled constantly by an ever-developing understanding of compassion. If we can learn about true compassion, not queen for a day, and not grief and not pity, but true compassion, we learn about open, openness, and we learn about tenderness, and we learn about that quivering or trembling of the heart that is compassion for ourselves and for others. When we learn that, or as we learn that, we can in fact be untiring in our efforts to purify, to let go, to be relieved of certain burdens because we don't get out of balance. We don't become strained. We don't become harsh. We learn not to care in our practice because we learn silence. 
we learn equanimity, we learn patience. And we learn to care as well, because we learn to be wholehearted, to be heedful, to be persevering, and to be compassionate. As we do this, as we learn to accommodate both sides of this, everything that we do embodies the sense of the middle path. Let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.